Open and outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Working in a field as innovative as ophthalmology means that change is constant. To offer the best care available to our patients, we must continue to assess and often update our treatments and techniques. Ophthalmologists never stop being students of ophthalmology, but for most of us, that's a reward, not a burden. My guest today is a quintessential lifelong learner. His passion for ophthalmic education runs the gamut from his dedication to his residents, his investments in advancing the field, and his candid way of speaking about life, work, and the artful yet elusive balance between the two. This episode is dedicated to such real talk with none other than Dr. Uday Devkin, coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome back for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and this is one I've been looking forward to for so long. Uh, Today we have Dr. Uday Devkin, and Uday and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, Actually, we got to know each other a little bit through the ASCRS chat board, which by the way, is a fantastic resource. The iConnect chat board, if you haven't been on there, is a fantastic resource to discuss cases, to learn from colleagues, and uh, really get a lot of uh, real-world uh, information. But Uday and I started to, uh, to get to know each other that way, and then I think it was back in 2010 at uh, a really fun event at the ASCRS in Boston. I think the, the event was called The Clink, and there was a hotel that used to be a jail, and they converted it into a hotel and had a big party there. And that's where Uday and I actually first met. And we've been, I would just say, tremendous friends. I would say Uday is a mentor of mine. He's someone who I trust and I go to when I have questions. And so there's been a, a major, I think, uh, revolution of, of Uday Devkin. And I want to d- dig into that. So as that, with that being a preamble, Uday, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk to me and uh, share some opinions tonight. Of course. Good to catch up with you. So Uday, you were someone in our someone who has been tremendously active in, I would just say, ophthalmology education as a, as a topic overall. And whether that is with the residents at your local residency program or with colleagues or writing articles or talking or speaking or doing live surgery, it seems to me as I look at your career, uh, which is still really a, a young career, you've got a long way to go and we can't wait to see what happens, but you, your career has really already spread the gamut of ways of giving back, ways of making our profession better. And I would just love to, to just dive in there and get a little bit of um, your perspectives on education and ophthalmology. And that can go in many directions, but maybe just start with what are you seeing in our residency programs right now in terms of applicants and, and how are you involved with residency education? Well, I think it's a fantastic time to be an ophthalmologist, and that's reflected in the increased number of applications we've seen. If you look at the San Francisco match data for ophthalmology residency, you know, the numbers have been steadily increasing, which of course means we have more and more fantastic applicants. It's more competitive than it ever was. And personally, at, uh, at UCLA, at the Jewel Stein Institute, where I'm fortunate to teach these residents on a weekly basis at the county hospital, as well as sort of on the residency selection committee, the applicants are better and better every year. It's really amazing. 
So not just smarter, you feel like they're maybe more well-rounded, they're better human beings, and maybe in every category, just better. Well, I think it, it, it spans the, the gamut here. So we have, uh, there are a lot more people with additional degrees. It's become relatively common. I'd say maybe 20 to 30% of the applicants take a year off in med school to either do a master's degree or a year of research or research fellowship, a year at the NIH, something of this nature. And so it really makes them a more well-rounded applicant that brings something a little bit different to the table. Um, a lot of them have other degrees, MBAs, PhDs, various master's degrees um, as well. I've really enjoyed meeting them at the interview process. It's really a fantastic opportunity to just sit one-on-one -on -one with what are going to be undoubtedly the future leaders in our field. Some people say that, you know, the new millennials are here and it's going to be different. You know what? It's going to be better. Yeah, there are different personalities than someone who's, who's my age. I finished residency in the year 2000, but these guys are amazing. I have no doubt that in a couple of decades, one of them is going to do a beautiful cataract surgery for me. <laughs> That's awesome. It's funny when you think about that, too. I, th I think about our profession, and I think, you know, whatever we give back is what we get someday when we are the one who becomes the patient. You know, so for when sure. I'm thinking about new lens designs or optics, you know, it's a little bit selfish. I want ophthalmology to be better because I want better options someday when I am the one laying on the table. It's eventuality for all of us, really. So um, I think you, you share that as well. What do you think about education beyond residency? Um, I think our profession, and maybe others are like this, I only see it in ophthalmology because of obviously that's my profession and I don't have any other family members who are really deeply involved in other fields, but what do you think about education, meetings, being a key opinion leader after residency, and how do we educate ourselves? How do we share information? How is that changing, and how have you found that to be either fulfilling in some ways, or maybe in other ways, and at some point, we can all get a little bit disenchanted with the process. What is, tell me a little bit about your journey in this whole, in this whole realm. Well, you know, we obviously keep learning throughout our careers, because ophthalmology, Right. Our only constant is change. It keeps evolving. Most things are evolution. On occasion, there's a revolutionary thing in our field, but it keeps changing. That's what we can look forward to. And it's important for us to keep up. I talk to my residents now and I say, you know, you guys have it harder than I did. And they say, why is that? I said, well, in the same three years of residency, they have to learn everything I learned, plus things that didn't frankly exist. OCT didn't exist. Anti-VEGF injections didn't exist. It's completely different. I mean, at our county hospital, we have plenty of diabetic patients. We used to do the CSME criteria, looking at an eye through, you know, at a slit lamp, and right. then and then treat it with FML laser. Yep. It's not done that way anymore. You get an OCT, you have an absolutely clear picture, and you treat it with an anti-VEGF injection. Yeah. So different. Yeah. So I think it's important for all of us to keep up with learning. For me, going to the meetings and presenting on the, on the podium was actually a very helpful way to learn. The best way to master a subject is to teach it. So I remember years ago, aspheric eye wells first came out, and we had to understand spheric elaboration of the eye, Zernigy polynomials, prolate, oblate corneas. I didn't learn any of that in residency. So I had to do my own self-education learn these things, boil them down in my head and make it so that I could present the topic with succinct slides that clearly showed what these things were. 
And that process of making my talks absolutely allowed me to learn the material. You know, I found that uh, exact same thing myself. You, you never want to walk into a talk um, because <laughs> the reality is there's always going to be the naysayer sitting in the back heckling uh, at any talk, there's going to be someone who their their God-given job is to uh, heckle or uh, try to poke holes in whatever you're presenting. And so, you know, whenever I'm putting a talk together, I'm thinking about that guy or girl. It, it, it seems to usually be a guy for some reason. Uh, but I'm always having that person, that archetype in my mind that someone is going to try and poke a hole in this. And I better not, uh, you know, be a mile wide and an inch deep on this topic. I need to go deep, and and that's for, sure. for me. I think maybe that's why I have turned down a number of opportunities because I just don't want to speak about something that I'm not passionate about or that I don't have depth in. And we all have a num- limited number of hours in our day to be a good doctor, or if you have a family, to be a good husband and father, etc. And, you know, I know I just can't be excellent at everything and I really have to stay in my lane. So <laughs> I'm a lot like you in that regard in that I used to turn down talks that weren't about things that I didn't love or that I just didn't have a big interest. And I'll tell you now, I'm not the best businessman. In fact, I should learn from others. Right. But when it comes to actually doing cataract surgery, ah, that's that's my sweet spot. Now I'm happy or to teach it. Right. Those things I truly enjoy. The other nice part about this, the amazing part when you think about it is the impact you have by teaching all these people and they go out and help their patients. Wow, I've had an indirect impact on an untold number of patients now, far more than I could ever operate on with these two hands. Well, and that that I think is something that we should dive into because as a physician, we are sort of limited in our ability to scale our impact. Um, If we just take our knowledge and our skill set and apply it to one patient at a time, we, even the busiest person may only be able to impact surgically, you know, hundreds or maybe even a a few thousand if you're really busy uh, patients a year. But if you teach um, another doctor or teach residents and then they teach, you know, it's really that almost like that compounded effect, compounded interest, and your impact becomes uh, you know, astronomical. I mean, I still remember um, Arpan Bachawath, who was my second year uh, senior resident, teaching me how to do a capsulorexis. And, uh, you know, he was taught by Jeff Taylor, who was his uh, senior resident. And it's funny how you look back at your residency and your co-residents and, and how certain techniques evolved and were passed down through the generations. But um, I'm sure it gives you tremendous pride when you're thinking about uh, your residents now, but also you can think back over the years of making a little impact and then seeing those those residents turn into uh, board certified ophthalmologists who are out doing amazing things. That's got to give you a tremendous sense of satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that really, it, it's a financial hit, to be honest, to, to do academics. Right. Because private practice can be so much more lucrative. But, you know, I realized there are more important things in my life. And the important things to me are, yeah, making this impact. It's it's something I was just meant to do. I just have a passion for it. Well, one thing I've really been thinking about lately is, you know, once you are 
over the hump in making a living. And not to say that we don't all, you know, struggle with, you know, how much is enough. But once you've figured out how to make a living, I think it's important that you, you change your focus to how do you make a difference? And it sounds like that was sort of your evolution too. Am I right? It really was. It really was. And there's, it's the tough part is finding balance, you know? Finding balance in life is something I've not been great at in the past, and I'm slowly getting better at it. You know, in the past, I'd go to meetings. I'd do an international trip almost every month, sometimes every other month. I'd do probably a total of 30 trips a year to give talks. And it was fun to be on the podium and be in front of an audience and get your points across and to see the, the country and see the world. I went to right. 50 countries. But it came at a toll. It's hard to be devoted to a busy practice at that time. It's also hard to spend time with family. Right. And then you realize as, you know, our kids are teenagers, they grew up so fast. Yeah. And it's why in the last few years I've pulled back. In the last probably four or five years, I've really pulled back from the meetings. And I travel very selectively now because I'd rather spend the time now with the kids before they head off to college. Because if they're going to be like me or like you, once they start college, they're pretty much out of the nest for good. Yeah. And I'll miss them. Well, you know, my philosophy has kind of been that, you know, my, you know, our kids are kind of similar in age, kind of teenagers. And, you know, I do have a finite amount of time with them. Um, and once they're gone, I feel like that might be a time when I can have a little more time to really push the pedal if I want to be gone a little bit more. I'm not doing it at the sacrifice of, of being exactly. away from them. Exactly. Exactly. My, my feeling as well. So I really enjoyed a lot of the podium and the travel and the and meeting other ophthalmologists, getting to know great colleagues across the country, across the world. And I'll get back into that. I just need two more years for my my youngest to head off to college. Well, Uday, we're, we have we have been missing your voice a little bit. I have to say, um, I love I love the pearls. Um, actually, I, I read an article that you wrote really about this topic, and that's that's what really jogged my interest in, in, in getting you on the podcast because it really did talk about your very intentional pullback from being um, gone, you know, from home, and a pullback from doing the number of talks and traveling as much. In doing that, um, what advice would you have maybe for younger guys or gals starting out trying to make a name for themselves who are hungry and, and really want to do that. What are the, what are the, you know, if, if there is caution um, or, or wisdom that you can share, what would it be? You know, try to find the balance that's right for you. Oftentimes at the beginning of your careers, it's even, e it's easier to get the time to do the traveling and the podium talks and the lecturing because you're not as busy surgically in your practice. Right. Plus, your family's either, your kids are either very young or maybe you don't even have kids yet and you're less encumbered. You know, I was, I was telling you one of the dumbest things I ever said to myself was when I was a senior resident and I thought, mm, I can't wait till I'm in practice because life will be so much easier. Because <laughs> you think as a resident, this is so hard. It, can, oh, it can't get any harder than this, but it does, but in different ways. It does. It does. Yeah, to find that right balance. And remember this too, senior residents or you're, you're doing your residency or fellowship where you're doing a tremendous amount of surgery, you start in a new practice, you may start off doing a few cases only. So no one really understands this or as a resident that when you're finished with your training, it may take you years to get out of that surgical volume you were doing while in, in your training. 
Well, it, it's what's so funny to me is it seems like uh, the typewriter effect. Of course, they don't make typewriters anymore, so you know, probably anyone younger than me doesn't know what that even means. But it seems like in our career of training, it's like you go through college and then you you learn all this. You know, I was a chemistry major, and there was very little carryover to med school, so it was like starting over from scratch in med school, and then learning everything about the human body, going through my internship, and then starting residency was like going back to square one, where we're basically learning everything about the eye. You know. When you don't know how to even, you know, refract somebody, you know, it's really yep. humbling. And then, you know, you go through your residency and then again, it's starting back from square one. Uh, for me, I started to practice. So that was literally starting over. And there's been a, a number of times in my life, I guess I'm good at starting over just because I've had a lot of practice at it. But you're exactly right. As a resident, you, you have these um, illusions of grandeur, maybe, um, of how great things are going to be. And then you get out and you realize, no, there's just diff- the challenges are are. It's not that they're not there; they're just different, and and there's there's not a predefined um, number or um, level of stress that those challenges can provide. As a resident, you kind of feel that way too, but you sort of know that there's an end. Once you start practice, the thing that's really difficult is you don't. It, it becomes much less structured in terms of where you're heading from day to day, and you're charting your own course for maybe the first time in your life because. You've been in such a structured environment. Did you have any trouble with that when you came out of residency? Talk to me about about your launch of your career after residency. Yeah, I think everyone does. I think it takes you a while to find your your right groove. You know, I tell I tell residents that like uh, like your first girlfriend, your first job may not be the one you stick with the rest of your life. It could be right, but it may not be. It's rare, actually. Right. It's rare. Right. Well, same with having a girlfriend or boyfriend, right? right? It's very, very rare to have your first girlfriend be the only woman in your life the rest of your life. Right. So, but so similarly, I think you have to be prepared that, you know, this, my first job may not be my last and that's okay. That's right. totally acceptable. It's not a failure. I, I, yeah. I feared that that was a sign of failure. Like I couldn't hack it or something was wrong with me. And I've realized, no, it's a learning experience. And then the second thing is, even when you find the job that you love that's perfect for you, your career evolves over time. The first six or seven years out of training, I did the full spectrum of general ophthalmology. Right. I did strabismus surgery on kids, eyelid surgery. I did cataract, glaucoma, cornea transplant, diabetic lasers, the works. One-stop shop. Yes, whatever came to the door. And, you know, I, I was so fortunate to train here at UCLA, which is an incredible residency program where we do everything. I'm here at this county hospital with my residents who saw a tremendous number of patients today, did all these surgeries. If the buck stops here, we don't refer out. Right. So we have attendings in all subspecialties, but they're not here every day. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough at this hospital to only have retina fellows. So the other fellows, we got rid of them so that my residents do all the glaucoma stuff, all the cornea stuff, all the peds, all the plastics, any orbital surgery, it's the resident and the attending. So the training is tremendous. But keep in mind, then once you get your career started, then you'll have, you'll pick up volume, pick up speed, and you'll have the ability to tailor your career, evolve it. Say, you know, I really don't want to do any more diabetic retinas. Right. Let me refer these out. Yeah. And then I don't want to do any more P and you keep doing it. I'm at my point now in my private practice. I literally 80% of what I do is cataract surgery. 20% is refractive surgery. That's it. Right. You can't call my office and say, well, I need to have an, a glaucoma. We don't do that. Right. 
Uday, I'm the exact same way. We, you know, I've evolved my practice, and I knew this pretty early on uh, that I really just had a passion for cataract surgery. And it's it's an easy procedure to love. It is very satisfying. Um, I was actually talking to a I had a, a um, young lady who was shadowing me, who's a uh, college uh, junior, and she's thinking about ophthalmology. And I said, you know, cataract surgery is sort of satisfying in the same way that like the YouTube videos of you know cutting slime is satisfying. There are all these satisfying videos. I said, you know, cataract surgery is kind of like that, where you know you get this sense of immediate satisfaction of removing this ugly opacity from the eye and implanting this beautiful lens that just unfolds and it just gives you this sense of satisfaction. So for me, cataract surgery, I've just always had that passion for it and I was pretty quick to uh, cut away other things just to get more and more busy. But you're exactly right. When you get out, you kind of have to scrap. You know, you have to be willing to see anything. You've got to be willing to go in. You've got to be willing to travel. Um, I don't know if you did any satelliting, but I was satelliting all over the place, actually to other states for a, a year and a half. And it was, it was insane. But I was passionate about it. I was willing to hustle. You talked about millennials a little bit. Do you feel like they have that same level of hustle or are you seeing it maybe applied in different ways? What do you think about that? I've seen in the applicants that we have or, or the residents we have in our program, nothing but superstars. I mean, I'm looking here at a poster. I'm sitting in the county hospital. We just finished a long day. I didn't get to see the sun today. It's a you know winter day here. Right. And this, I got a poster. We got eight residents a year. I got 24 faces on the wall in front of me. And there is not a weak link in the entire group. So these guys are these guys are serious. They're super motivated. They work harder than ever. Like I told you, they learned everything we learned, plus all the new stuff in the same three years. That's, I mean, it begs yeah. the question, when's ophthalmology residency going to go to four years, right? Right. There's just so much so much volume of material to learn. But they pick, they pick it up fast, and they even see more patients because our clinic is busier than it was 10 years ago. Right. They see more patients, and they do more surgery. Our senior residents routinely finish the residency with 300 cataracts. Yeah, that's insane. I, I think I did 200, over 200 at UK, and that was, uh, and they're doing about 300 now there, I think, as well. It's, it's really, really crazy. Um, all right, I want to shift gears a little bit because I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't want, I've got some other things I want to talk to you about. And this is a broad question, but you have, I really want to just hear your unfiltered opinion. Where do you think we're going in terms of a profession in refractive cataract surgery? You can take that in, where do you think cataract surgery is going, future advancements, where are we going with lens calculations? I know you've been involved in the lattice super formula. Where are we going with new IOL technology or even down the road with uh, laser technology for um, either changing the lens power or uh, refractive, you know, corneal refractive surgery? Where do you, where do you see the giant ship of ophthalmology in the, in the realm of cataract and refractive surgery, where are we heading? Great point. In fact, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting over our careers, over the last certainly 10 years, is when cataract surgery has been recognized as the most powerful and most widely performed refractive surgery. Yes. And so it's, a, it's a, certainly a, a mindset change, and I think it's the right one. The two projects I'm working on are directly related to this. So my two projects, I'm working with John Lattice, who was a co-resident with me, as well as Albert Jun, who's at, at Hopkins, and Azam Siddiqui, who will be actually starting residency at, uh, in New York. 
And we have a, a proprietary and novel way of doing lens calculations, which is now incorporating an artificial intelligence nomogram. Okay. And, and so the results we're getting so far, we're obviously still in beta testing, are spectacular. The ASCRS meta-analysis of LASIK, which we consider our most exacting refractive procedure, right, was about 91, 92% of patients basically within a half doctor Plano. Right. We can now achieve that routinely in cataract surgery. In fact, one of the things I'm going to have to do is twist your arm and, and get a couple hundred eyes of data from your practice and show you. We'll plot out using our way and, and plot out any other formulas you want as well to compare, but we're really getting more and more accurate. And I think that's where we're headed in giving refractive accuracy. Do you need to have a lens where you can adjust the eye power? Whether UV light, whether la YAG laser, whether femto. Um, fem femto, yeah. Do you need this if 90 plus percent of your patients are hitting Plano right off the bat? Right. That's a question. Second, second project I'm working on is a novel design accommodating lens implant. The lens is called the Juvene lens, J-U-V-E-N-E. Okay. Kind of a play on the, you know, on, on youth there. Yeah. And it's made by a company called LensGen, L-E-N-S-G-E-N, -E like next generation lens. Yes. LensGen is based in Irvine. It's run by my good friend, Ram Rao, who have a fantastic team. And it's a lens that's a very novel design, and it's provided a surprising amount of accommodation. I was lucky to do the first human implantations out of the U.S. in 2015. And now we're continuing more and more trials. Results were promising enough that Hoya, the Japanese lens company, just invested $21 million with our company. So I think we're doing something great. You're doing something right, definitely. And we're on the right track. But obviously, it's still early. And right. this needs more longitudinal testing, more refinements. And that's where my projects are. So I still work on those two projects. I've given up most other consulting contracts and, um, and relationships only because I wanted to focus on family and then only a little bit of time on the consulting. Well, and I think that it's another uh, idea of, you know, if you limit your projects to just a few, you can go really deep with them because you don't have a lot of things that are uh, vying for your attention. So Correct. I, I think that we as professionals, you know, who are highly motivated and, and go-getters, we sort of feel like we have you know, an unlimited bandwidth to uh, achieve things. And what, what right. I've realized is if I open too many channels, uh, the relative amount of depth I can to give to each channel uh, suffers a little bit. So Of course. Of course, I look back at my old uh, days of doing all the speaking and consulting and traveling, and it was how long can you make your disclosure list? Right, right. Now <laughs> I, I want the opposite. How right. short can I make it? I just want a couple things, things that I really love and I'm really passionate about. Well, I want to just say this. I've sort of been following LensGen from the uh, from the side, and uh, I am really excited about the technology that that they're doing. And I think there's a pretty good talk if people are interested at the OI. I think the OIS website has a pretty good talk about LensGen um, if they if people are interested. Am I right in, in saying that? Yes, for sure. Okay, I've seen it, so I assume it's probably still there. And it seems like there's a fantastic team working on that, and we wish them nothing but the best of luck. Especially, uh, you know, an accommodating platform is something that is a huge uh, unmet need, and, and we're, we're all looking for the day when we can fully restore accommodation. What about daily routines, 
self-improvement. This is the kind of start of a new year. Is that something that you that, that you believe in or not? I'm just kind of curious. I'm just throwing this out there as something that um, I'm curious to ask. So either there's not a right answer, but what what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we should always keep learning, not just about ophthalmology, but keep our brain stimulated, but also keep setting goals for ourselves and make them challenging enough that you don't always succeed. I don't necessarily wait for a new year to have goals or resolutions or plans. I do it as I'm going through the year. You know, one of my interesting projects was in the last probably uh, 12 months or so, I've gotten into speaker design of all things. Really? Well, I always liked electronics as a kid. I I think I made a mistake by not becoming uh, an electronics engineering major in undergrad. But uh, just to learn how to make your own amplifier at home is one. And there, it's very easy to learn online. There's, there's so many good resources. And I'm also making actual speakers where I'm measuring the drivers, designing the crossovers, right? doing all the calculations. You know, it's funny. I like it because it's a lot like ophthalmology. It's so mathematical. Right. Well, like you're, 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 I'm sure, designing the impedance and figuring out if you want to do 8 ohms or 4 ohms or… All uh, the above. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that, that's a common misconception that a speaker has only a single impedance. Right. There's a whole graph of the impedance changes over the entire spectrum of the speaker. Right. Right. So, so, so I used to design speakers in high school, actually. Awesome. So, um, I, I, it's a, this is an offline conversation we can have, but I recently uh, bought a toolbox from uh, Home Depot and, uh, and took some Polk speakers apart, put them in this uh, briefcase-style toolbox, and have this uh, Bluetooth um, – this Bluetooth boom box that I've created from another set of speakers and a Bluetooth amplifier I bought off Amazon. So there's some pretty cool projects. If you're, oh, if you're bored, yeah. you can get into. So, yeah, so, I'm, so, I mean, so my kids asked me, my kids said, dad, why are you reading all this stuff, you know, about speaker design and doing all this is because I want to teach myself something new. Yes. And I may not be, I may not, may not have that same interest in doing these speakers a year from now. Maybe I'll have moved on to something different. And I probably will, but I'll do the same thing where I'll be self-taught. I'll really get in deep. And so I have an understanding of things in a deep way on that one topic. And I think that's just the process of learning. And we love doing that. And it's nice to take a break from ophthalmology. We're all passionate about ophthalmology. Right. I'm like you, I can do cataract surgery every day and love it. Right. But sometimes you need a little bit of a break. Well, there's a great uh, editorial um, by um, actually Malcolm Gladwell um, and uh, it was in. It was actually in the journal Ophthalmology this month about how medical students do better if they are taken. Actually, ophthalmology residents, I believe, if they're taken out of the clinic and study art. And the whole idea is, if we give ourselves a little bit of a break and we study things that are outside of our field, it actually allows us to bring more into our field because our mind is working in different ways. Um, it's actually talking about um, all sorts of um, uh, Nobel laureates. They tend to have more hobbies than their um, other peers in their field. So um, I'm the exact same way. Every year I try to do something a little bit different and maybe not on the year, maybe just on a regular basis. I taught myself how to play guitar. Um, I built a water balloon uh, remote control mortar with my son. <laughs> you know, we've, we've been launching water balloons at guys playing uh, golf in the backyard. So that's kind of fun. But I love the idea of just teaching yourself a new skill. And it's amazing when, the, when I've done that, 
in some way, there's some carryover into either skills transfer, learning how to learn or reminding yourself how to learn a new skill, I think um, is, is tremendously beneficial. So uh, we've got a lot in common, Uday, uh, beyond even just ophthalmology. So I uh, love talking to you. And uh, look, you've got an open invitation. If you ever have a project you're working on or you'd like to give us an update on the Lattice Formula, uh, we would love to hear about it. Um, I will commit to you, so I'm, I'm, I'm going public with this. I will commit to you uh, a couple hundred eyes to help with this project. Um, we, would, we would love to participate in that, and uh, we, we all need to do our part. And uh, that, if I can do that, that would be helpful. Um, I commit to you right now that we will uh, we'll do that. So looking forward to helping on that. I, I will get the email written tonight to get, the, get you plugged in. If anyone else wants to try it as well, it's, the website's iolcalc.com. That's awesome. And you can you can register. It's all free. There's no charge. But I think you, you'll be you'll be impressed. We'll analyze your data for you and give you the results, and you can see how just how accurate we're getting. I mean, one of the amazing things with the artificial intelligence portion of this is it ended up predicting our neural net predicted and derived essentially the Doug Koch Lee Wang axial length modification for high myopes. It did it on its own. It did it on its own. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. It, it's just crazy. And so when I saw and it's within 10% of the numbers that, that Doug Koch and Lee Wang are using. So it's just a, Doug Koch's been one of my mentors. And if I had a quarter of his brain, I'd be a genius. Oh, yeah, but exactly. It's amazing that this predicted that. And it's predicted other things, too, that we're just kind of looking into now to see, is this going to pan out? Well, really fascinating. that is unbelievable. We want to we want to keep our finger on the pulse of this. So. Please, um, it, as updates come become available, if, there, if this is a way that you'd like to get the information out there, uh, we would love to, to help out with that. Uday, we, we uh, love hearing from you. you know, we're looking forward to all of your future contributions, and uh, you've got an open invitation to come back on this, uh, on this podcast anytime, buddy. Thank you, Gary. It'd be my pleasure. As Uday described, the journey is not just about learning, but evolving. On both professional and personal levels, we must keep searching for answers to the tough questions and reevaluating and reconfiguring as we go. Thankfully, the current and future generations of ophthalmologists have mentors like Uday to help along the way. So with that, I'd like to thank Uday for sharing his experiences with us and thank our listeners for tuning in. Up next on Off the Grid, Drs. VK and Leela Raju, father and daughter ophthalmologists, discuss their charitable contributions to ophthalmology. We'll take a global look at public health, quality of care, patient expectations, and more. Don't miss it. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.